The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, Today we're going to look at the familiar parable of the talents that David just read that's found in Matthew 25. And this is really the third parable in the series our Lord gave His disciples in the Olivet Discourse. Now He's giving them, remember these parables, an answer to their questions. And the Lord outlines the course of events from the time of His departure through the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies, which has to be the end of the age. That's the time when the Lord comes. It's His parousia. It's the end of the age. It's the destruction of the temple. Now, he closes with the word of admonition that's basically contained in one word, and that is watch or be alert. They were to be watching because, as he said, they didn't know the day or the hour that his coming would be. They only knew it would be in their generation. Now, to expound upon the word watch, he has given us these parables. Um, They describe what it meant to be watching for his return. Now, it's obvious that there's no break from the previous parable and this one. There's really no new element that's introduced in this parable. For the representation of the coming of Christ as a time of judgment runs through this whole prophetic discourse of our Lord. Like the preceding one, this parable had an immediate lesson for those who heard it for the first time. It contains a solemn warning to the servants of Christ to be faithful and diligent in the absence of their Lord. And it points to a day when He's going to return and reckon with them. It sets forth the abundant reward of the good and faithful and the punishment of the unfaithful servant. Matthew 25, 14 and 15 say, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one each according to his ability, then he went away. Now, commenting on this verse, James Stuart Russell writes, the the connecting particle for, in verse 14, distinctly marks the continuation of the discourse. The theme is the same. The time is the same. The catastrophe is the same. Up to this point, therefore, we find no break, no change, no introduction of a different topic. All is continuous homogeneous one. Never for a moment has the discourse swerved from the great, all-absorbing theme, the approaching doom of the guilty city and nation, the solemn events attended thereupon. All take place within the period of that generation in which the disciples, or some of them, would live to witness. So when he says, it will be like a man going on a journey, it is evident even early in this story, that we have the same basic pattern as the other two parables. Here's a master who's absent. Certain ones are waiting for his return. And the parable was primarily addressed to the disciples alone. Now, we really have to stress that, I think, with this parable. And you have to understand, you have to get this. He is talking to his disciples. They were the ones that asked him the questions. He is answering their questions. Let me just try to reinforce this. Matthew 24, 1 and 2, 
Yeshua leaves the temple and was going away when His disciples, okay, His disciples, came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them. So they asked the question. He's talking to them. Verse 3 and 4. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Yeshua answered them. Verse 6, He says, You will hear of wars and rumors of war. Again, He's talking to the disciples. They are the you. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up. That's not you. That's them. They are the you. All right. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, again, talking to the disciples. Verse 34. I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Their generation, the one that he was speaking to. Verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Again, addressing the disciples. Verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 25.13, Watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. So we've got to grasp that he's speaking to his disciples all through chapter 24, 25. That is his audience. They're the ones who approached him and questioned him about the temple's destruction. Now according to Mark's Gospel, The questions were asked by Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Matthew and Mark say they came privately. Now, in both Matthew and Mark, this is used to set the disciples apart from the crowds, not apart from each other. I think this means that they were the ones who raised the questions, not that they were the only ones present, but they're asking the questions, so he's talking to the disciples. So keep in mind that Yeshua is speaking to the disciples here, he had told a similar parable to the Pharisees in Matthew 21, 33-46. That parable is addressed to the unbelieving Jews, but the parable of the talents is addressed to the disciples and their responsibility during the Lord's absence. Alright, let's look at the parable itself. For it will be like a man going on a journey. The it here is a reference to the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. That was what he talked about in the last parable. It will be like a man. Now, W.M. Taylor says of the parable that it's true to the oriental life of the Lord's time. And he writes this, When a wealthy man was leaving his home for a while, two courses were open to him for the arrangement of his affairs. Either he might make his confidential slaves, his agents, committing to them and the tilling of his land and the giving them his money to be used by them in trade, or he might take advantage of the money changers and money lending system, which had been introduced by the Phoenicians and which was at the time in full operation throughout the Roman Empire. In the present use, the Lord adopted the former of these courses, and there was at least a tacit understanding, if no formal contract, that the servants would be rewarded for their fidelity." Alright, so he's leaving, so he gives these talents to the people. One he gave five, another two, another one. Now, there are some who take the word talents here as referring to the natural gifts. They want to take this parable, they want to apply it to us today and make some... We can't do that, people, okay? We've got to leave it in the context it is in. He's talking to his disciples. 
they say, you know, people who say the parable is talking about our natural abilities and stuff, he's talking about the talents that the Lord has given these different people, all right? We're to use our talents for the Lord. But if you read the parable that way, you're going to be misled by the modern use of the word talent. Talent to us may mean an ability, a capacity, a natural ability to do something. In other words, you may have a talent for singing or organization or leadership or athletics or whatever. That's not what it means here. Okay, That's not what he's talking about. In a biblical times, a talent meant a weight of money. It was a considerable weight. A talent could be gold, it could be silver or copper, each with its own value. The Greek word used for money in verse 18 is argurion, a word that can mean either money or silver, which may hint at the second meaning. It's best to compare the talent with modern currency in terms of earning power, if you want to understand it. If a talent was worth 6,000 denarii, then it would take a day laborer 20 years to earn so much. A talent, 20 years, okay? Perhaps $500,000. So the Lord, when he went away, he distributed money among his servants, a considerable amount. Notice how the Lord distributes the talents. One guy gets five, one gets two, and one gets one. And then the Lord of the servant, he goes on a journey after he gives them these different responsibilities. Verse 16 says, He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. Now, the New American Standard Bible says, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded them. Our text says, he went at once. So the faithful servants immediately got busy doing what the Lord told them to do. All right? And then verse 18 says, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. All right, so basically this servant didn't care to be bothered by the task that the Lord had assigned to him. So he just digs a hole in the ground and he buries the talent there. Now, let me remind you, what's the golden rule of parabolic interpretation? Determine the one central truth the parable is attempting to teach. All right, don't try to come up with some symbolic meaning for this. You know, people come up with some crazy, he stuck the money in the ground, that means this, that means this. That was just a common practice in the Lord's day. Okay, the banks weren't all that reliable. You want to make your money secure, you go out and dig a hole and put it in the ground. All right, you come back, guess what? It's right there, same place. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. At that time, it was safer to put your money in the ground than in some of the banking systems. So you just go out back and you dig a hole. Hopefully you remember where it is, okay? Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled with them. All right, here we see the Lord coming back and settling the accounts. Now, it says, after a long time. So those who want to divide this chapter, into, or this discourse, into two different comings of our Lord, they just kind of seize upon these words here. And they say, see, it's a long time. And they want to push the coming thousands of years. Now, here's what I want you to remember here. Yeshua's disciples were young teenagers, all right, probably 15 years old. Peter was probably 20. Peter was the oldest of them, but they're they're 15-year-olds. And so their boss comes to them and says, hey, guys, I'm going on a journey. I want you to take care of things till I get back. 
And when I get back, we'll settle accounts. So they're 15. How old are they when their boss gets back? 55 years old. Is that a long time? <laughs> Is that a long, you think that's a long time? Okay, that's what it, it's not talking about thousands of years. It's talking about a generation, which is 40 years. So these guys, they're 15, their kids are going to be 55 years old. They're going to be old men when their boss gets back. He gives them money and says, I'm going out of town, take care of it. All right? So 40 years is a long time. Now, Dr. Herbert Lockyer, commenting on after a long time, says this. This does not imply that Jesus meant to teach that His second advent was not to be expected for centuries. He never set a time for His coming. Well, I agree with Lockyer, except for the last sentence. Maybe he missed Matthew 24, 34, where Yeshua said He'd return in that generation. So that is the time. He did tell, He did set a time. He said a generation. He didn't say a day or the hour. But they knew... It was going to be within their generation. All right, Matthew 25, 20 says, And he who had received the five talents came forward. When the Lord comes back, he's, he's bringing his five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents here. I have made five talents more. So he's just all excited about this. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So these two servants are bubbling over with enthusiasm. I mean, they're excited. They're thrilled. The Lord's returned because they've been faithful. So they're anxious for him to come back and meet him. And, and to, you know, they basically want a pat on the back. Well, the Lord praises them, and He rewards these servants for their faithfulness. In the eyes of their master, they have proven themselves to be thoroughly reliable. They both doubled their money. They both received identical praise. All right, verse 24 says, He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you didn't scatter any seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested the money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So this servant is saying that the master was a hard man. He exploited the laborers. He put his servants to a, in an objectable position. And in verse 26, he says, You knew. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. That's an interrogation. It should be rendered, Did you know? It's not an admission of the accusation of the servant, but a question of astonishment, implying, however, that even if the charge was true, the servant wasn't justified by his conduct. Literally, the master said, you should have invested my money with the bankers. Now, these bankers were the men who they displayed their coins on the benches there. And for a small fee, they'd exchange money. They also paid interest on money that was deposited with them. There's no praise and no reward for this servant. He's called wicked and lazy. Verse 28 says, so take the talent from him and give it to him as ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. 
And he who has abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, commenting on this, Albert Barnes writes, This seems to be a proverbial expression. It means whosoever rightly improves what is committed to him shall receive more or shall be rewarded. But he that misimproves what is committed to him shall not be rewarded. So the idea seems to be use it or lose it. You know, you didn't use what was given to you, so you lose it. In verse 30, he says, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the Bible doesn't reveal all that's implied with this term, outer darkness. It seems to imply a darkness outside some region of light. I'm sure that to imply, a, it, it gives us a sense anyway of a, a deep sorrow, maybe even pain. This people is not speaking about what people call hell or eternal conscious torment. I think it's talking about being in Jerusalem when that city is destroyed. And if you understand the horrors that happened during that time, you'd understand this better. Again, in this parable, we see a strong contrast between a faithful servant and an unrighteous servant. So what's the spiritual truth here that Yeshua is trying to teach with this parable? You know, as we attempt to understand this parable, we have to keep in mind the main rule of parabolic interpretation, a parable is one central truth. All right, don't try to, all the details don't need to be made something. The main ideas of the parable are really not hard to find. The wealthy master, referred to as the Lord by the servants, is who? It's Yeshua, all right? The journey into the far country refers to his ascension. He went into heaven and they're waiting for His return. These servants are the disciples. We tried to stress that. To whom Yeshua is speaking. Are you with me so far? You got that? That's not really complicated, right? Alright, what do the talents refer to? Well, before He went, He entrusted them His property. And that's really important that we understand that. The talent here in this story represents something that belongs to God, not to men. Alright, it's His talent He gave them. It's not something that we have. It's something He owns and distributes among men according to His will. So what is it? Well, I believe that the valuable merchandise that is given to the disciples is the Gospel. Alright? It's the glorious Gospel of redeeming love and grace of God. Such wealth beyond compare was committed to the disciples to invest. Paul, speaking of the Gospel, says this, We have this treasure in jars of clay. So that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So in answer to the disciples' question as to when the end would be, the Lord answered them in verse 14. He said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, unless we take this verse clear out of its setting, The end in view here is the end or the destruction which was to come upon Jerusalem and the temple. Ending the Jewish age, Jerusalem would be destroyed, but first the gospel would be preached to all nations. Now, whose responsibility was it to proclaim the gospel to the world? Well, in Matthew 24, 14, Yeshua predicted what would be done But in Matthew 28, He commanded it to be done. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Yeshua had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Yeshua came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission was given to the disciples, the same disciples whom Yeshua gave the parable of the talents. The same disciples who asked him the question about the end of the age. They were responsible to take the treasure of the gospel to all the world. Now, in his prayer to the Father, Yeshua prays this in John 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Yeshua was sent by the Father, and he has sent the disciples into the world. He sent them with a mission. Similarly, the Father had sent the Son into the world with a mission. Listen to John 3.17. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So John 3.17 indicates that God sent the Son into the world in order to save the world. Now Yeshua sends the disciples into the world for the exact same purpose, to proclaim the saving work of Christ, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, the disciples knew that the end would not come until they had finished their task. The end that was to come once the gospel was preached into all the world was not the end of the material world or the end of the Christian age. And People, I don't think we can stress this enough, but the Christian age has no end. People talk about end times and they apply it to, we're living in the end times. End times of what? Christianity? Well, I thought it was an everlasting kingdom that the Lord set up. Look at uh, Luke 132 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The kingdom of God is Christianity, and it has no end. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do far abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Yeshua throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The end that was to come once the gospel had been preached in all the world was the end of the old covenant world, the end of Judaism. Now this proclamation of the gospel into all the world was something that was ever before Paul's eyes. His desire desire was to be faithful to the Lord so that one day he would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, I think this teaches that there are greater and lesser rewards. This is the same idea that we saw in the parable of talents. The idea of the Lord coming to reward his own was one of Paul's, I think, greatest motivations. God rewards on the basis of labor. He rewards on the basis of faithful service. Now, we saw in the parable that those servants who were faithful were rewarded by the Lord at His return. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
He's saying we, him and his fellow laborers, we're ministers, we're co-laborers for God. Paul is saying that Apollos and he are not working for themselves, but for God. They're God's servants rather than his colleagues. Just as in the parable, they're distributing God's goods. Now, at the end of verse 9, he says, you're God's building, you exhibit God's activity in the spiritual architecture. And three times in this verse, he says, we are God's. We're God's fellow workers. We're God's field. We're God's building. God owns the workers. God owns the field and he owns the building. Now, Paul's now going to use that imagery of a building in verses 10 through 17 of this chapter. He used the metaphor of a field in verses 5 through 8, and then the metaphor of the building in 10 through 17. And he tells us that these verses, in these verses, that a minister is a builder in the house of God. And Paul is, Paul is addressing here these servants, these ministers, and their responsibility in these verses. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, he says this, And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I think that's what Paul is dealing here. He's dealing with this group of apostles and prophets and evangelists. He's, he's encouraging them to be equipping the body. And they're to be equipped, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. He says they're doing this for the building up of the body. The point is that the gifted men equip the entire body to work in accordance with their various gifts that they had. So the purpose of these gifted men was to equip the saints so they would do the work of ministry. They'd use their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Now the word until here is the Greek word mekri. And it means up to a certain point. A preposition of extent denoting the terminus. It denotes that he gave gifted men to the church and that that will continue until the action of the following aorist subjunctive, katantaho, until we all attain. Now, grammatically, there are three phrases in verse in 4.13, each beginning with the word attain to. So we have attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then that's one phrase. And then attain to the mature manhood. That's another phrase. And then attain to the measure of the full statue of the fullness of Christ. That's the third phrase. Attain is used three times. Are the, I'm sorry. Attain is used nine times in the book of Acts to refer to travelers arriving at their destination. Thus, each of these phrases involves a process that results in a goal. The goal is that we attain to the unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son of God, the goals we attain to a mature manhood, the goals we attain to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. So Yahweh's purpose for the church was that it would be conformed to the image of Christ. That took place in AD 70 when the Lord returned, bringing in the new heavens and the new earth where we dwell with Him face to face. So the coming again of the Lord for His people brought them to full maturity. Now during the interim period, the servants of God would be building up the church. During that 40-year transition, the church was growing. Now, in this section, in 1 Corinthians 3, the builders and the workers are in view. Not necessarily a believer in their spiritual life. He's talking to the builders, the workers. He's talking about those first century saints who were called of God to proclaim the gospel. 
He says in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, note carefully here that Paul is addressing builders. He's not speaking to every Christian, but to those who are called and gifted of God to preach and teach the Word of God. And he gives a caution to them at the end of verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. The words each one refer to each one of the builders. Now in the following verses, Paul is going to lay down two responsibilities for every builder. The first is that he build on the foundation of Yeshua the Christ and Him crucified. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Yeshua the Christ. So Paul's message to Corinth was Yeshua and Him crucified. The doctrine of the atonement. The coming in the flesh of the Son of God, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And the reality of forgiveness and restoration for everyone who accepts Christ in faith. Now the person and work of Yeshua revealed in the Scriptures is the true foundation on which the church is built. Now, the second responsibility of the minister is to build upon that foundation using good materials, which is probably referring to the grace of God as opposed to law. Remember the Galatians were trying to add to the, the works of the law to the foundation of the gospel. I mean, they believe you had to trust Christ, but then you had to also keep the law. The materials are described for us in verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. The whole thesis of this passage relates to the builder, the minister, the servant, and his duty. And his duty is to teach the gospel of grace. The church is the temple of God, and that which adorns the temple of God is doctrine. Wood, hay, and straw were not used in the erection of a temple. It was used in the building of a home, but not a temple. They represent the false teaching, I believe, of the Judaizers. He says in verse 13, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So he's saying there's a coming day of judgment that's going to clearly reveal that the doctrines of Judaism were over and had been replaced by the gospel. That was clear. Once that temple was destroyed, Judaism was done. Now Paul's image is this. He sees a large building being built and many men involved in the building. Some are using good materials, some are using poor materials. At the parousia of Christ, the materials will be judged just as wood, hay, and straw can't stand before a fire. False doctrine is not going to stand before the judgment of God. In verse 14 and 15, two different types of workers are going to be exposed at the day of judgment. First, we see the wise worker in verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. Now, this is the man who's built with gold, silver, precious stones, the things that would endure. He has taught the truths of the gospel of grace. The wise builder is going to be rewarded for his faithfulness. This is the same idea we see in the parable of the talents. Now, in contrast to the wise workman is the foolish workman of verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved only as through fire. Now, he's going to suffer loss of reward, not salvation. 
The stress in this passage is on the servant's service to Christ. He'll be saved, he says, but through fire. And I think this is a picture of those Christians who went back to the law, went back to Judaism, and were caught up in the city when the city was destroyed. They were in Jerusalem as that city fell, was burned to the ground. All right, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, there's two words in the New Testament to describe temple. One is hirios, which is, refers to the temple and all its precincts. The other word is the New Testament is naos, which refers not to the whole temple, but to the Holy of Holies. And that's the word Paul uses here. Do you not know that you are God's nahas? You are the holy of holies. What do you mean by that? Well, he's saying you're the dwelling place of God. All right, God's not dwelling in a building anymore. You are the dwelling place of God. It's you that God's taken up residences. And this is what the church is in reality. It's the dwelling place of God. It's the body through which God is manifest to the world. We're image bearers. We're bearing the image of God to a world. We're showing them who our God is. Now, because the church is God's temple, he goes on to say, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Man, how many of you have heard this verse used for Christians shouldn't smoke cigarettes? Right? You heard it preached that way? See, you destroy God's temple, God will kill you. And they say, you're the temple. He's talking to the church corporately here, to the people. You know, and this destroy here is the word thero, to spoil by any process, to ruin, to corrupt, to destroy. The Corinthians were God's temple, and God dwelt within them. Any man who would seek to destroy that temple through false teaching was going to be destroyed. That's what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. The word he uses here for servants is huparetes. This word referred to a rower in the lower galley of a ship. All right, a galley slave, basically. And I say galley, I'm not talking about cooking anything. A galley of a ship where they were on an oar and they were rowing. And what Paul is doing here is he's explaining the relationship between the master and the servant. Paul is telling us that we are to regard those who minister the Word of God not as superiors, but as subordinates of Christ. Galley slaves. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And you know that a galley slave gets his own parking place right in front of the church, right? And the galley slave has a picture of himself as you walk in the door on the wall, you know, and you know that that's the galley slave, right? I mean, we've turned things so much upside down in the church. You know, pastors are now this high, lofty position that everybody, you know, bows to and, you know, just they're, they're special. Paul says, we're servants. taste. we're galley slaves. We also regard them as a steward, he says, of the mystery of God. The steward was a familiar position to the readers of the New Testament. The steward was a slave who was given special privileged responsibility by the master. So again, these are terms not of you know grandiose terms. These are terms of servanthood. He was, in a sense, the overseer of the house of the master. 
So here's one slave that's elevated above the other slaves and is given responsibility of dispensing to the members of the household the provision, the stores of the master that were needed by that household. Now as a steward then, the minister of the gospel has his primary function in dispensing the mysteries of God, it says. Now mystery is the Greek word musterion. In its biblical use, it's something that doesn't give us the, the idea of mysterious. It's a secret, basically. something that cannot be known without revelation. Only understood by God making it understood. It's something that was hidden throughout the Tanakh, but revealed in the New Testament. And I think the, the mystery was, Paul is talking about here that, that God, all that He revealed in Christ, but specifically the mystery was the Jew and the Gentile will be one in the body of Christ. One body. And his prime responsibility is to dispense that message. That's the prime function and prime requisite is faithfulness, he says in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Remember, in this context, he's talking to those who are preaching the gospel. Stewards are to be faithful. He's to be viewed simply as a man who is entrusted with the stewardship. In the dispensing of those mysteries, his prime requisite is to be faithful. He's to be faithful to his master. Just to give out the word of God. Not change it, not elaborate on it, just put it out there. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each will receive his condemnation his commendation from God. All right? So judgment will take place when the Lord returns, he's saying here. Paul says the Lord will disclose the purpose of the heart, which is an explanation of the statement, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. In this text in Corinthians, Paul is saying the same thing as the parable of the talents is saying. I think this shows us clearly that the parable is directed to the disciples and their ministry of proclaiming the gospel between the Lord's ascension and His parousia. He left, He gave them a responsibility. When He returns, He will hold them accountable. The old covenant people, I think we're aware of, was a ministry of death. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.6. He was made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills but the Spirit gives life. See, that was a problem with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant could not give life. We see that in Galatians 3, 20 and 21. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it couldn't be. So therefore, God promised a new covenant that would give life. And that was their message to proclaim this new covenant. Jeremiah talks about this new covenant. Jeremiah 31. In, the, in those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So as the church was being matured, as this new covenant came into being and was born at Pentecost, 
The church was birthed at Pentecost, and it was growing during this 40-year time. As it was growing, the Old Covenant was still there. They were still taking animals into the temple. They were still sacrificing. There was still the priesthood. But the Old Covenant was growing old. One is increasing. The church is increasing. The New Covenant, I mean, the Old Covenant is decreasing. Hebrews 8.13 says this, And speaking of a New Covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. That's the Old Covenant. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing near the end of that transition period. And he says, this old covenant is going to be obsolete. It's growing old now and it's about ready to vanish. This is why the gospel had to be preached to all the world before the end would come. The new covenant world had to be perfected before God removed the old world. His disciples were to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom until He returned. So we see from this parable that God rewards faithful servant service and He punishes those servants who are unfaithful. Now as I said, this parable deals with the original disciples and their mission of evangelism. If we compare this parable to Luke's parable of the pounds, we see some additional thoughts. Different aspects are stressed in these two parables. In the parable of the talents, Yeshua addresses His disciples while at the Mount of Olives. In the parable of the pounds, He's speaking to the multitude at Jericho. In the talents, very varieties of stewardship are dealt with. They differ from one another in the amount of gifts received. In the pounds, all are equally responsible. The servants differ from each other only in the diligence displayed. Both parables exhibit the distinction between the faithful and the faithless, between reward and discipline. In Luke 19, 12, he says, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and return. All right, he gives us the added details of he's going to get this kingdom. He left to do it. He's going to come back. You, you get the idea that's just talking about the same thing. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated them and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. All right, the citizens hated him. Now, the first difference we see here is that all the servants, they got the same stewardship. Everybody got the minor. They all received a pound. The second thing we notice is the additional aspect introduced here. His citizens hated him. They rejected his reign. These citizens are destroyed at his return. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So the citizens here refer to the Jews who are destroyed in AD 70. He goes on. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten. Ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Now, so we see the third difference here is that the servant did much more than just double his master's money. But what I want you to see here in verse 17, the faithful servant is given rule over ten cities. What exactly does that mean? I don't have a clue. But it's clear 
It is some kind of reward for faithful service. Alright, that's the whole idea here. Faithful service will be rewarded. The fourth difference that I see is the unfaithful servant is not said to be cast into outer darkness, but he loses his pound and he's not given any reward. I think this parable emphasizes the responsibility of all first century believers to proclaim the gospel message until the Lord returns. I think it also teaches us the principle that God rewards faithful service. We see that all through the Bible, people. God rewards faithful servants. All right, back to the parable of the talents. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, that sounds terrible, right? It is terrible, but I don't think it's referring to hell. I don't think it's referring to some eternal conscious torment. As I said, I think it's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, those people who weren't faithful, who didn't obey the Lord's word, they went into Jerusalem instead of running from it when they saw the abomination of desolation. And therefore, they were barricaded in that city, locked in it. They died of starvation. They died of, there was factioning groups inside the city killing each other. There was all kinds of horrible stuff going on. Women were eating their own children to survive. Horrible things going on, and I think that's what he's talking about here. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The unfaithful servant, they didn't proclaim the gospel for fear of persecution from their Jewish brothers because they were put out of the synagogue. They were put away, and therefore they lost a lot of things. And we see this idea of you know being fearful to preach the gospel. In John's gospel, in John 12, he says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Okay, now the text says they believed in him, so I think they believed in him. Is that that difficult? Huh? John MacArthur says, the Bible says they believed in him, but they didn't. I'm like, well, I don't want to argue with the scripture. I just, let's go, let's be naive. Let's just say if it says they believe, they believe. Because it could have said something else, right? And we know all through the Gospel of John, believing is believing, and now they're Christians. They believed in him, but, now here's a but here. For fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him. So you're going to say, oh, they wouldn't confess him. They're not Christians. No, they believed in him. Okay. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory or praise that comes from man more than the praise that comes from God. All right. So here are some believers. But because of their love of man's praise, they kept their association with Judaism. And they would have most likely been caught up and destroyed in the city when it was destroyed. They suffer the same physical fate that the citizens did in the Luke's gospel, except they're redeemed. But they're still dying in the city because of disobedience. The parable is addressed to the disciples. They were to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel until the end of the age. The overriding principle in this parable is that rewards are given according to faithfulness, And chastening is brought on by lack of faithfulness. So what's the parable mean to us? Well, it teaches us, I think, the principle that runs throughout the Bible. Negligence of spiritual truth is punished. That, and diligence is rewarded. People, that is such an important thing. When you live by the Word of God, your life is blessed. I don't care, you know, it doesn't mean everything's going your way. 
Okay, you can be in a severe trial, but you could still be blessed. Remember, we talked about Paul and Silas. They were beaten. They were stuck in the inner dungeons. And they're singing hymns because they're blessed, because God is in control. And when you follow Him, you're blessed. But when you don't, you will suffer in this life. And I see many miserable Christians because they don't follow the Word of God. They want to do it their own way. They want to follow the ways of our society, which is majorly corrupt. They want to get along with society. They want to fit in with society. They're going to suffer for that. Okay, mark it down. God, you don't mock God, all right? What a man sows, that he's with, that's what he's going to reap. So negligence of spiritual truth is punished. Diligence is rewarded. We also have a stewardship, we do, I believe, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, the only way people are going to hear the gospel is if we share it. That's how they're going to get it. And I don't think, you know, I, I think that the idea is when the Lord told his disciples, as you are going, preach the gospel, which means you're going through your life. You're doing the, the things you do in life. Share the gospel. People, your neighbors, co-workers, people at school. You have to build a relationship. My sister-in-law was talking to me this week about something, and she was like, how do I go about it? How do I share with them? And I'm like, don't give them more than they ask for. Okay, I think that's one of the biggest ways to turn people off. You know, People say, oh, you're a Christian. And you, Whoa, man, you started Genesis, go through Revelation, you hammer them with everything. And they're like, I'll never ask another question to you again. You know, If they ask a question, give them what they ask for, and then wait for them to come back. You know, Make sure you have interest there. Too often, we're just so, you know, we got our gospel gun belt ready and we're going to blast them with the gospel as soon as we get a chance. I don't think it works that way. I think just be there, be available, take the opportunity to share when you can, tie spiritual things in there, encourage them, but man, don't dump the whole mother load on them all at one time. Chances are they won't come back. Now, if they're interested, that's fine. You know, sit down, but be sensitive, okay? Be sensitive to, to where they're at and, and, you know, how much more they can take of what you're giving them. But we are called to proclaim the gospel. It's a, it's a unique, incredible privilege that we have. You know, I, I've gone away from opportunities when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, and I'm so excited, and I'm so pumped, and I ask myself, why? I'm like, I don't get a commission? You know why? I mean, but there's just this excitement because you know, man, if they, if they believe it, they're going to have eternal life. We are the bride of Christ and we're to be calling the world to faith in the gospel. You know, we live in a corrupt, messed up world and Christians basically are attacked today. I mean, we're starting to see some persecution. If you stand up for what you believe, you could lose your job. You could, well, you're a, a homophobe, you know, you're all this thing because you don't go along with all the perversions of our current society. But we just got to tell people, this is what the Bible says. You know, this is what it teaches. And that's what we're called to go by. But we have to share the gospel. Revelation 22. This is in the ending section of Revelation. This is what people refer to as the eternal state. Okay, in other words, this is when everything is over, you know, and everybody's just in heaven. It says the spirit and the bride say, come. Who are they calling? This is talking about the age in which we live right now, people. Okay? We are in the new heavens and new earth. This is what this passage of Revelation is talking about. It says the Spirit and the bride say, come. We're, we're inviting people. Let the one who hears say, come, come on. Let the one who is thirsty. <laughs> See, you got to be thirsty. That's the thing. 
You know, we try to give water to people that aren't thirsty at all. It doesn't work out. Let whoever is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I believe that we will be held accountable for the stewardship that has been entrusted to us. And I pray that we, like the first century saints, will seek to hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. People, it's a privilege we have to share the gospel. But we understand that unless God opens people's eyes, they'll, you know, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit. But we don't know who is and who isn't. Spurgeon used to say, if God would have put a yellow stripe on the back of the elect, I'd run around lifting up people's shirts to see who I should preach to. But we don't know, so we preach to everybody. And, you know, God will do what He's going to do. But it's an exciting thing, people, to be involved in this. And, I mean, if, if you're excited about Christianity, if you're excited about, you know, eternal life with with the Son and the Father and the Spirit, then we should be involved in sharing it with others. And I pray that would be a passion for us. But we have to take those opportunities. When I was in Bible college, one of the courses on evangelism, something you had to talk to seven people a week. You know, you had to share the gospel with seven people a week. I mean, it got ridiculous, you know. I'm out at a toll booth, and I'm like, by the way, do you know, you know, and I'm trying to go through the gospel at a toll booth because I had to get my seven in for class, you know. And I'm thinking, why would we do something like this for a grade, but for eternity, it's like we don't care to do it, you know. Well, I think it was a little ridiculous because it forced you to do things, you, but, it, but it did make you aware when there's an opportunity, share. And sometimes when there wasn't an opportunity, you share anyway. But so so... Don't do it for a grade, okay? Don't do it for a class, but do it for because you care about people. And that's the best way to show you love people is by sharing the blessed gospel with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, it is rich. It is such a blessing. I pray that we as your people, Lord, would learn the principles of hermeneutics and we'd learn to take the word of God in context and we'd understand what it's saying to the people whom it was written first and then seek to apply it to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for the day and age in which we live. We have such rich resources at our disposal. Father, may we long to hear your words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.